So we kicked off going through the book of Philippians in May, in the middle of May. And uh, I think at this point, it's really important to remind ourselves um, that the book of Philippians the book of Philippians is not an academic textbook. Um, and I know that sometimes as we work through a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse, it can kind of feel that way. Um, like we're learning what's in the book of Philippians. We're getting our doctrine down so we know it. But we need to remember that this is not a textbook. It's a, it's a heartfelt letter. And um, it's not merely to equip us to know doctrine on an intellectual level. It's to move our hearts and minds to live the gospel, just like as if you would write a letter to a friend, you know, you, you have intentions to, to move their hearts and minds towards something. And, um, and that's what Paul's heartfelt letter is to the Philippians, to, to move their hearts and minds to live the gospel and the transformation the gospel brings on a practical level um, to their day-to-day lives. Um, for instance, when Paul talked about striving side by side for the faith of the gospel in chapter one. Um, That has practical implications. In other words, lived out, it looks like something. It impacts life internally and the way we interact with other people around us. In Paul's case, it looked uh, like Paul advancing the gospel um, through trials and shipwrecks and house arrests and prison. It looks like the humble, others-focused love of Timothy that he talked about. It looks like the compassionate risk-taking of Epaphroditus that he talked about. Um, It looks like a businesswoman, Lydia, and a jailer, and a young woman freed from demons, joined together in one local body of believers, worshiping God, and working together to see that others are brought to know Jesus. And I hope that you've also noticed that this is a very personal letter, Okay, Um, that's why kind of when we started it, um, we just read it through as if the church was getting it for the first time and someone opened up the letter and was reading it because we wanted to kind of have that same impact as if we were the Philippian church hearing it for the first time. And um, we heard we heard a lot of words, endearing words that Paul puts in this letter, like um, I hold you in my heart. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Um, just last week, he calls them my beloved, my joy, my crown. And I think it was clear to the church family at Philippi that Paul deeply loved them. And in today's passage, again, motivated by a deep love for the Philippian church, Paul is going to ratchet up um, the personalness. Um, I don't know if that's a word, but I, I came up with it anyway. Uh, but he's going to ratchet up the personalness of this letter uh, to some specific members of the church family. I'm going to read the passage again, and um, uh, we're just going to talk through um, verses 2 and 3. And I'm I'm going to correct something that Eric, Eric left out one entreat, and this is, I'm going to get to this in a minute because it's important. How Eric read it on the screen was, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche, but this is how it, it, it is, just t- teasing you, Eric. But it, this is important, and I'll, I'll share this uh, as we get through the message here. I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women 
who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So we see that there is some kind of disruption between two women in the church. They are not in agreement. Um, They're not of the same mind. We don't know what the disagreement is. We're not told. Um, It could be a variety of things, right? I mean, we we think of like what causes disagreements among us. It could have started as a personality conflict. It it could be differences of giftedness. Um, Sometimes we have to work to get along with others who have different gifts than we do um, as they view things through an entirely different lens than you do. I know sometimes um, even in in, uh, my giftedness of, of service, I can just get focused in, in checking off boxes and sometimes I, I, I'm blinded by, um, you know, actual people involved, you know. And, and w- when I run up against someone who's got more of a uh, gift of mercy or a compassion for someone, I, it's like, then I hear that perspective. I just go, gosh, what am, what am I thinking? I'm just like, doing this task and I'm not even thinking about the people, you know? Um, so there's just, it, it could be something uh, related to um, different gifts that, that people are not um, trying to understand or see life through the lens of, of another person. Um, it could be a disagreement over how ministry should be done. Um, it's very likely that an outcome of this disagreement involved hurt feelings, as that's often the case. Um, something like, did you hear what she said about me? Or did you see how she looked at me? Um, or it could be something that, that didn't happen that someone was expecting to happen. Like, why didn't she say anything? Um, we, we don't know, but I mean, I think that we know in our in our experiences, how something like this could happen. In the end, whatever it was, it was less important than their being of the same mind in the Lord. One of the major things that Paul has been constantly talking about in his letter is unity in the church. And nothing is going to change here in chapter four. Paul calling people to agree in the Lord is not a new concept at this point in his letter. He's been addressing unity throughout the letter. He's been addressing selfishness, complaining, arguing throughout the letter. So by time whoever is reading this letter to the church um, starts talking about Euodia and Syntyche, the church already has heard ample exhortation to live in a way that I'm sure if they followed through with what Paul has already written, this conflict conflict would dissolve pretty quickly. Um, regarding that phrase, agree in the Lord, and I like how um, Eric um, prayed or, or made the point that really uh, in the Lord, you know, the unity is, is in the Lord. And, uh, and, but that phrase, agree in the Lord, in the original Greek, the word in here in, in Philippians 4, it's translated agree in this passage, but elsewhere in Philippians, the same phrase has been translated um, same mind. You know, having the same mind. Um, Paul has been addressing this idea of the people in the church having this oneness or having the same mind in every chapter of the book. 
Um, I'll just take us back to some of the verses that we've already been through that kind of show this. Philippians 1.27, he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Then in Philippians 2, 1 and 2, Paul said, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, and I'm going to interrupt myself for a second. Um, as we talked about when we went through Philippians 2, really what, that, what, what that's saying is if there is, and, and indeed there is, or since there is. So I'm going to read it like that. So, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, and indeed there is, any comfort from love, and indeed there is, any participation in the Spirit, and indeed there is, any affection and sympathy from the Lord, and indeed there is, complete my joy by being of the same mind. That is the same phrase as agree in the Lord having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And then in Philippians 3, 15 and 16, Paul said, let those of us who are mature think this way. That's that same word, the phrase, same, the same phrase. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. So apparently Paul knows that there are some in the church that might not be on the same page here. At a minimum, when he wrote Philippians 3, 14 and 15, he knows that Euodia and Syntyche are not on the same page. But as you can see, Paul's burden is that the church not be at each other's throats as they represent Christ in this world. So the issue of unity between believers is not a new idea. It's not only all over this letter from start to finish. It's really all over the New Testament. I don't know, this is just conjecture, but perhaps Paul is so burdened by this because he is aware of what Jesus said, that the world would know that we are his disciples by our love for one another. If not that, <clears throat> if you recall what happened in Acts 15 between Paul and Barnabas, that experience that Paul experienced firsthand, it talks about him having a sharp disagreement um, with his close brother Barnabas. Um, and um, Paul experienced the pain that came from separation. They separated from each other um, because of that sharp disagreement. And uh, it appears that Paul has learned, or at least has taken into account that experience, and by all means, separating from one another is not the outcome that Paul is hoping for between Euodia and Syntyche. Um, so we've established that Paul has laid a foundation for the Philippians to agree in the Lord, to have the same mind, to be a group of people who find their way towards harmony and peace. Uh, he exhorted the Ephesian church in the same way. In Ephesians 4.3, Paul urges the church to, quote, maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And uh, what I want to point out from that passage is that the unity among followers of Christ is a unity that comes from God. 
Ephesians 4.4, one verse later says, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Um, the Ephesian church, the Philippian church, and we here at Liberty Hills Bible Church are not, we're not creating the unity of the Spirit. God creates the unity of the Spirit, but they and we are called to maintain the unity of the Spirit. So when we see here in this text where Paul is calling Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord, he is not saying that agreeing in the Lord is what creates their union with the Lord. In a sense, they are already in union with one another and with the Lord because they are both in the Lord. And so Paul is saying, because of the fact that we are all unified in the Lord, I want you two to find a way to work this out, to maintain the unity of the Spirit. <clears throat> now, what's beautiful about the gift of God's Word to us is that it's, it's real, it's true, and it provides real life happenings that we can learn from and grow in wisdom. <clears throat> I mean, just to even have this, um, this passage in the scripture for us to learn from is, 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 is authentic. It's, it's, it's real. <clears throat> and um, for example, our passage this morning shows that it's possible right, for brothers and sisters in Christ to have faithfully served Jesus in the gospel, but still not be immune to getting sideways with God and other people in the church. Even though we know the gospel, even though we believe it, and even though we've worked to advance the gospel, we still can get diverted into a way of life or thinking that actually contradicts the gospel. And that's what's happening here to these women. And one of the most damaging areas this can happen in is our relationships. Um, because the gospel is all about relationships and what they ought to be. Um, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is, is that we can be restored to a relationship with God. So wouldn't it be just like our enemy, Satan, to work against us to be divided and in disarray in our relationships in the church? I mean, he's... I'm sure he's not happy when, when a person um, becomes restored in their relationship with God. Um, so what can he do is try to divide us from each other. Um, the example that would demonstrate to the outside world as we are telling them that Jesus has the power to reconcile them to a right relationship with God would be a laughable as they vi visually see a group of people who cannot even have a right relationship with each other. So <clears throat> that's, um, that's why I think Satan attacks our relationships uh, because we're trying to tell people that, hey, God has the power to reconcile you to himself and yet they see, if the world sees that we can't even get along, then it, it's, it's a false message or doesn't, doesn't appear to be true. But I think God has confidence in his abilities, okay? And God knows that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we love because he first loved us. So God's not giving up on us. 
that is kind of like what Paul said in Philippians 2. And um, it says, if, and indeed there is affection, any affection from the Lord and sympathy or compassion from the Lord, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, having the same love, um, etc. We enjoy the affection and sympathy from God himself. I mean, that, 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 is, that is something that, that we are always getting from God. Uh, I, I do not like this phrase. I've shared this before after I became a, a new Christian and I, I uh, you know, I, Christianity was foreign to me. So uh, being around new Christians, people would say things like, well, I have to love them, but I don't really like them. And I used to think, even in my, my head, like, that doesn't make sense, okay? Um, and uh, you've, if you've heard that phrase, you know, um, I don't know, maybe you've heard it before too. Well, think of the word affection, like God's affection. That's both I love you and I like you, Okay. I don't think you can get, get away from the word affection as I love you, but I don't like you, right? Um, God loves us in a tender way with a love that won't quit. And Paul is building this whole being of one mind and of the same love on what God has already done and is doing in our lives. We have been brought into the loving unity of God's family by God himself. So thinking in unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ rises from or originates from God's treatment of us and God's work in us. And that is why Jesus predicted that people would know we are his disciples, his followers, his learners by our love for one another. In fact, John the apostle goes so far as to say if, if, if we don't love others, then we don't love God and we don't know God. The hallmark of what it means to prove to the lost world around us that Jesus had actually come from the Fa God the Father is our being unified in love, just as the Father and the Son are. So on the flip side, if there's not love, if there's not unity, what it does is cast doubt on whether Jesus was the Savior of the world or a fraud. Was he who he said he was? Did he do what he said he did? Are we preaching a lie or are we preaching the truth? How often do we think about not getting along with our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ at that deep of a level? Like the stakes are as high as heaven and hell for those on the outside looking in. The stakes are as high as God gets the glory or he doesn't. The stakes are as high as people believe that Jesus is the savior of the world, or they don't. Have you ever thought that the disunity you may be experiencing with a fellow brother or sister in Christ may be obscuring the gospel in a way to where the world can't see it? This passage this morning tells me that genuine believers, we can get tangled up in behavior that is a practical denial of the gospel that we actually believe. But it also tells me that when... And if we do, it's crucial to recover harmony for the sake of the gospel and the advancement of the gospel. So you find yourself at an impasse. You find yourself in a disrupted relationship 
with a brother and sister. What do you do? And again, I appreciate how Eric in his prayer, you know, prayed this. Uh, I had this written down. We didn't collaborate with these things. But Paul already gave us the answer in chapter 2, verse 5. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about how Christ humbled himself, took on the form of a servant, left his throne to become in the likeness of men, humbled himself to death, even death on a cross. So when you think of the distance that Christ went from God to, to man, from the ever-living one to one who died, from the sinless one to the one bearing the whole sin of all the world, the point is there's no distance that you can go that is further than the distance that he went. And living this way to walk in peace and harmony with your fellow brothers and sisters really is a practical way where you can take up your cross and you deny yourself and you follow Jesus. You, you literally are living like Jesus at that point. So in our passage this morning, which we still haven't gotten to, by the way, Paul brings application of unity in the church to a sharp point by addressing these two individuals by name in the church whose interpersonal conflict has gone unresolved. And it's apparently just too serious to ignore. Whatever the conflict was between these two believers, it had not remained private. And how could it, right? Um, They were members of the body of Christ. You can't say, oh, well, I've got a spot of cancer on one of my organs, but you know what? My hands and my feet are doing good. Um, And this situation was affecting the church family. And news of this had reached Paul, obviously, perhaps through Epaphroditus, So it clearly was a concern among the leadership and it couldn't remain unresolved. Perhaps the leadership of the church through Epaphroditus, you know, asked Paul the question, what do do we do about this situation? Um, Hebrews 12, 15 gives a crystal clear warning to us. Um, Hebrews 12, 15 says this, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. So I'm sure Paul was aware of that. If this one situation, it's not private. It it could blow up to where many in the church be defiled. It It could cause major issues in the church. The fact of the matter is none of us lives to ourselves because we're all connected members of the body of Christ. And sins we choose to leave unchecked is going to harm others too. We can, you can count on that. You might even think, well, this is a private sin. It's just between me and God, if you will. You can't tell me that that doesn't affect others because when things aren't right between you and God, I know it affects your ability to be right with other people and your ability to serve the Lord as, as he would, would have you serve him. We are connected, and we want to use our connectedness to build one another up in love, not to tear one another down. And sometimes that means coming alongside those that are struggling to get along with each other. So I've talked a lot in general, 
<clears throat> about unity and some of what Paul has already said about unity in the church and the implications of a lack of unity. <clears throat> but now, um, let's just make some observations from this morning's passage to see what we can learn from it when we face disruptions of unity in the church. What practically can we do to help people who are struggling? And you might find yourself this morning struggling with, it, with a situation. Well, <clears throat> right off the bat, it says, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. The first thing I see here is that Paul confronted the issue head on. We might think from our point of view that it was a little blunt, um, but, but I, I don't think so. I, as I stated before, I think this issue had probably gotten to a point where it was well known uh, in the church. These two women might have even been expecting that Paul would have something to say about the issue. Uh, after all, these aren't two obscure church attenders of whom Paul didn't know. He says he labored side by side with both of them. Uh, so he knew them well. Paul was trying to do exactly what we just read in Hebrews. He was trying to see to it that Euodia and Syntyche did not fail to obtain the grace of God, uh, that God freely would provide to each of them to resolve this issue if they would be humble. The second thing I see here is that Paul sets up his exhortation in a context that he highly values and treasures Euodia and Syntyche. And, um, and uh, this was talked about last week in, in, the, in the previous passage, but uh, and I mean in the verses just prior to, uh, to verse two here in chapter four. But um, Paul just got done in the previous verse calling the entire church his beloved, his joy, his crown. And uh, many of you have probably heard the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I think Paul understood this. And these two women understood that Paul cared deeply about them. So him basically calling them out in this letter, <clears throat> though it might have stung a bit, um, they understood that it was coming from someone who cared deeply about them. And it was coming from, um, from love. Um, and, 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 and that Paul highly valued and treasured them as people, as brothers, as sisters in Christ. Um, <clears throat> and again, <clears throat> we look to a few verses before his exhortation to these two women to make a third observation. Um, this is from Philippians 3.20, okay? <clears throat> but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. What, what I think Paul is doing here is he's laying a foundation to give these women the proper perspective so that they will see the issue in light of something far greater so that their disagreement is kept in the proper perspective. In other words, if Euodia and Syntyche will begin to set their mind on heavenly things, then the hope is that they will begin to have their perspective of something like, hey, this sister that I'm having trouble with, she's a citizen of the heavenly city 
with me. And we're going to live forever together in that city. Jesus poured out his lifeblood for her. The spirit of God that's in her is also in me. And the hope is that if these women start thinking with a heavenly mindset, then it would be very difficult for them to continue thinking in a disunified, contentious kind of way towards each other. So, <clears throat> um, so Paul's trying to lift their thinking to a heavenly mindset, to, to set that foundation before he addresses them. A fourth observation is that Paul, he entreats them rather than commanding them. The word used here means to come alongside and beckon, that word entreat, to call someone to do something. It's not like he's standing over them, talking down to them. It's like he's coming alongside of them, talking to them, next to them. And the thing to notice here is subtle, but Paul doesn't say, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche. He actually says, entreat to each one of them. He's speaking to each of them in a tender way, and he's coming alongside each of them to encourage them to do the right thing. I think it conveys um, that personal relationship and interest that Paul has already displayed towards this whole church family, that he holds them in his heart, that he yearns for them with the affection of Christ. And when he talks to these two women, he's not talking to two random sisters in the church but he knows them by name. He's labored with them. He cares about them. He loves them. And so he entreats them. A fifth observation that's very important is that Paul understands that God uses his people to be the, quote, boots on the ground or the flesh and bones to work in concert, if you will, with his word. And what I mean by this is when Paul says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. We don't know who this true companion is. Um, in our, for the sake of application today, it could be you or it could be me. Um, but what this implies is that Paul is saying, yes, meaning, yes, I have given fantastic foundations in my letter for why they should be able to agree and pull together in the Lord like they once did, but I'm not content with just the words of my letter. Yes, I have done my part in coming alongside these two women as best I can by entreating them in my letter from being many miles away, <clears throat> but I'm not content with just long distance entreaties. The way the Lord works to heal these kinds of things, that is relationships that have gone sideways between people, is that he is calling for a boots on the ground person to get involved. Someone who can get these two women together, listen to both of them, listen to both sides of the story, <clears throat> try to understand both of them, face-to-face, eyeball-to-eyeball. And I think a takeaway here for all of us is to not assume that preaching or private Bible reading is enough to heal all wounds. 
No, we need to put flesh and bones on God's word and learn how to help others to carry out his word. Now, practically speaking, we know that God's word is, is, is powerful enough to, to solve every problem. But I think what God is showing us here is that like, I have you all on the earth for a reason to work with my word to help get through these difficult situations. Um, you, you all know of stories of people that come to church, believers, for years, and yet they're like not on speaking terms with some other brother or sister in Christ. So uh, at some point, someone needs to get involved, right, to, ad- to address that situation. Um, and there are many passages that actually validate this, but I'm just going to refer to two of them. Uh, Ephesians 4 <clears throat> um, talks about... Um, uh, equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, right? Um, the saints are to be equipped to do the work of the ministry. That means saints helping fellow saints, okay? Um, it's not just the, the pastors that, that need to be um, resolving all the issues in the church. Um, Hebrews 3, 12 and 13, we are all called to exhort and take care of one another, um, Part of the unity of family is that we restore one another in meekness. We restore those who have been caught even in a transgression, is what Galatians 6 says, if you are spiritual. In other words, if you are under the spirit of God's control, you can be a part of helping these people because God cares about these brothers and sisters, and therefore, so should we. And that's because we're connected. We're all part of the body of Christ. Um, 1 Corinthians 12 makes that clear that, that there may be no division is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12. And it's talking, uh, he's talking about this living unity. Um, when you go somewhere, you like your entire body to go, right? You don't want to leave certain body parts at home. Um, and so, you know, we want, we want our body to be united. One book said it this way. Um, well, I'll start off by saying this first. I think we need to be aware and not be taken off guard um, by these types of situations that could arise in the church, but to plan on having these type of euodia and syntyche conversations for the good of the church and for the glory of Christ. Um, One book said it this way, if you are going to have real relationships with others, there will be conflicts. and anyone in this room who's married, I'm sure has discovered this. Um, you know, we, we marry the kindred spirit. spirit. Uh, we marry the love of our life. Um, the person that we, we say, we, you know, we can't live without this person. And then after a little while, we wonder if we can live with each other sometimes. Um, and why is that? Well, you're around each other enough that any small flaw can start to grate on you. You know, little idiosyncrasies that someone might have, they do something a certain way, and it's just like, I just don't like the way they do that. I want them to do it the, the way I think is the right way to do it. Um, and it. And it starts to bother you. Um, so just from experience of marriage, to have unity in marriage, you have to work at unity as a husband and wife. And it's the same in a family, um, and it's the same in the church family. It's something that, that you work at. Um, and, and when these things come up, these are not easy conversations to have. 
Um, they're not real fun. But for the sake of the body of Christ, we need to push through that uncomfortableness. Um, when I've been in these situations personally of wading into a conflict, it gets my guts churning too. I'm not, um, I don't know, maybe there's a spiritual gift out there where it doesn't get someone's guts churning. They're just like, oh, I love these situations. Let's, let's go, let's face it head on, you know? I don't know. Most of the time, um, by time something is known though, it's often pretty bad and you never know what the outcome is going to be. And, and you know that when you enter into it, um, that oftentimes you're gonna end up getting your nose bloodied as well. Um, maybe it'll work out and you'll be the prince, but if it doesn't work out, um, as I've experienced, be prepared to be, have the blame put on you. <laughs> you know, um, that's, just, that's just part of it. But that doesn't stop us from doing what we should do. So what do we do when we are aware of conflict between our fellow brothers and sisters in the family of God? Do we revert back to elementary school and start chanting, fight, 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 fight? Um, or do we run away? No. The way Paul is showing us how to deal with this is face it head on, have the guts to overcome our fears and to come alongside um, these women um, motivated by his love for them in order to try to help restore these two sisters to a right relationship with one another. Um, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called the sons of God. Um, it will cost you. If you look at uh, what it cost Jesus to restore, reconcile the ultimate broken relationship, um, it cost him everything, it cost him his life. But nonetheless, we are called to step up and help those who are struggling and getting along. A sixth observation is that Paul happily identifies with these ladies and reminds them of past times when they were serving God joyfully. He says, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel. So back when Paul was at Philippi, evidently these women were in the thick of gospel ministry with Paul, and he wants them to remember this, that they were laboring side by side with him. I think sometimes, you know, things in life get us distracted, and then we start getting tangled up in things that, that get us off course, and we start to overcomplicate things, and we need a reminder to get back to the basics of what God has called us to do. Why are we still here? And sometimes it's that simple as, you know, we're tangled up in some situation, and if you just stand back at a 50,000-foot level, it's like, what, what are we doing? I mean, we're called to, to advance the gospel on the earth, and why are we in this petty situation? Why are we... What are, what are we doing? So Paul, Paul is trying to remind these ladies of like, look, we were working side by side in gospel ministry. I want you to remember that. Um, the seventh and final observation is that Paul is not calling into question their salvation. And so that within that context, he is summoning them to unity. He says... Um, whose names are in the book of life. Euodia is in the book of life. Syntyche is in the book of life. Why is this important? 
Because I think the overwhelming emphasis here is to say to this true companion, um, or to us if we are the true companion, look, as you help these women, don't look at them as though they were some kind of marginal, maybe Christians. They aren't marginal. They work side by side with me in the gospel. They are my fellow workers. Deal with them as full-blown heirs of life. And I think a takeaway from this is that when we are in situations where we are the true companion, the helper, we need to not treat one another as though they have a cloud of suspicion hanging over their head saying, well, maybe they're not a real Christian. Um, I don't know if you've ever done that. I, um, that that's, sometimes that's the knee-jerk reaction. Well, maybe they're not a Christian. Paul didn't want this true companion to approach these women that way. And we would do well in the church to give people the benefit of the doubt and speak to them um, this way. You, you are in the Lord. You have been fellow laborers with the saints and your name is in the book of life, in the book of, life of the Lamb who was slain. And it was written there before the foundation of the world. And we will be together in the kingdom forever and ever. So let's get this thing worked out. Let's bow in prayer. Father, just thank you so much for giving and sharing with us these true things that happened to to give us um, uh, principles for how we can, um, how we in the church can handle these situations that... (laughs) didn't just happen 2,000 years ago. They, they, they've happened all through church history, God. And pray that you'd help us to learn from these lessons um, and how to deal with conflict in, in the body of Christ um, from what we've learned today. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to be um, the true companion uh, when, when we need to be that true companion to wade into those conflicts, God, and, and to, be, uh, to be that helper, God. And uh, I know it's not fun. I know it's uncomfortable. But I pray that you'd give us the courage to, to be that person, um, regardless of the, the outcome. And um, so, God, I just um, thank you for um, this day pray that you just um, bring these things to mind, Lord, as we um, come across these situations in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.